Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Welcome to the second hour of the Loving Liberty broadcast and podcast. Lines are open now, 801-331-8113. I ask, you know, I always ask, please hold your calls until this hour. This is the time. If I have uh, lit the fuse, if I have uh, touched the nerve, trying to think of another useful metaphor, something that uh, AOC could not confuse (laughs) <laughs> like pull up yourself, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Uh, yeah, I, I, I would say please call in, be a part of the show. 801-331-8113. In this hour, if you thought last hour was heavy, oh, we were just getting started. I mean, the, the, uh, this is going to make depleted uranium seem light as helium by comparison. Sorry, that's the first element I could think of or the first thing I could think of that would be really, really heavy. But I wanted to start by talking a little bit about the battle over America's soul. Now, if that sounds dramatic, I'm sorry, but look, I'm sure many of you saw the same thing that I saw earlier this week, and that was the just, well, not only the impeachment stuff, but just the naked partisanship that was was part of the State of the Union address. And for some people, I know it was a glorious moment, you know, Um, I, I don't feel like I'm I'm misrepresenting things if I say that President Trump rubbed the Democrats' noses in it in the same way that you would rub your dog's nose in it if you found a mess, you know, on the parlor floor. He was in fine form, and he held nothing back. And, of course, there was, you know, there was a lot of resentment. You know, Nancy Pelosi tearing up the the copy of the speech afterwards and just the the way that the press has reacted. It's it's just clear to me there is some very serious division. And, in fact, I'm, I'm not trying to make light of it so much as just pointing out we all see it, but the question is, what do we do about it? Can something be done about it? Because it seems like we're being led to uh, a very dangerous place. Well, I want you to consider what Boris Zelkin has to say. This is on intellectualtakeout.org. This was published yesterday. The Battle Over America's Soul. He says, as I watched the President's State of the Union address on Tuesday night, I couldn't help but notice that division was the order of the evening. But he says the divisions on display were not merely political in the sense of policy differences. Abortion, immigration, education, and other important policy concerns continue to inspire heated disagreements filled with passions that too often become rancorous. But he says policy differences always have and probably always will do that. In a society as diverse and inclusive as ours, with as many competing perspectives and interests as we inevitably will have, there are always debates to be had. And passions necessarily are going to be inflamed. Passionate people disagree passionately, but over time, the hope is that political solutions are achieved. But he says passionate, even angry debate is foundational to republicanism. And for those who might just try to translate into to strictly, uh, you know, um, political terms, what he's talking about is in a representative republic, which is what we live in, not a democracy, but a representative republic. The ability to openly discuss, debate, and argue these things before ultimately, you know, putting it to a vote or allowing elected representatives to put it to a vote. It's that debate that gives us the chance to deliberate and hash things out. 
I'm still convinced this is one of the the brilliant things that the founders uh, were were appealing to when they gave, for instance, Congress the ability to declare war, not the president, not the Supreme Court. They wanted to put that power into the hands of a deliberative body where things could be discussed, where they could be tossed about, argued over, knowing that there might even be passionate arguments. I mean, for crying out loud, what didn't didn't one senator pretty much try to beat another senator to death on the Senate floor with his cane, you know, for interrupting a speech? I mean, it's the bottom line, though, that the ability to speak freely, the ability to argue these things actually helps. However, as Boris Zelkin points out, these are not the kinds of divisions, you know, the, the passionate debate isn't the kind of division that gives him pause. Something he saw that alarms him is even more horrifying and that is he says the division i saw on display at the state of the nation and see everywhere around me from office water coolers to coffee shops and dinner tables is a deeper one that goes to the heart of our nation and he says it's not even an issue or even a set of issues that divides us it's not ordinary partisanship it's not how we feel about president trump it's a division based on the kind of lens through which we view america herself See, now he has my complete attention. He says there exists a cultural fissure that has been expanding for some time between those who see the United States as a foundationally evil country and those who see it as a fundamentally good one. Between those who see the United States as merely one among many countries, no better, though possibly worse than the others, and those of us who see it as an exceptional country, deserving our affection not only because it is ours, but because it is good. And he says it is a struggle, in short, between those who see nothing but racism and suffering and those who acknowledge these but are able, nevertheless, to see America as a beacon of hope for humanity, regardless of race or creed. To use Ronald Reagan's term, a shining city on a hill. Now, he says that that division exists between those for whom the American flag and the Pledge of Allegiance are a call for showing indignation at a history they view as encapsulating injustice, and those who see those same symbols representing the best possible aspirations of the human spirit, concentrated representations of the just ideals towards which to strive, and symbols of hope and possibility. In short, he says there exists a division as to the nature of the American soul. And he says, ultimately, despite all my past Philippics decrying the rise of political tribalism and Monarchianism, I feel that on this issue, one cannot stand on the sidelines. One must choose. So he asks, do you see America as a nation that despite its flaws is the greatest nation on earth? Or do you see it as nothing but flaws made manifest? That's the difference between us. Those are the two visions that do battle for our nation's soul. Choose one. Love to get your take on that. 801-331-8113. Let's get right to the phone. Hello there, and welcome to Loving Liberty. Hello, Brian. Is this my line? Yes, you're on the air. It is. Okay, sorry about calling a little bit earlier, but I'm going to be in a bad reception area really soon. Okay. So I just wanted to um, thought out, and that's, uh, I wanted to get right to what you're you know, talking about. But first, during the news, I heard that that President Trump said that when Nancy Pelosi ripped up that document, that actually she broke the law. It's an official document. 
And I was thinking, wow, you know, they're trying to say President Trump broke the law, and all of these lawyers and politicians, you know, found no law that he broke. You know, but they were trying to invent, you know, him doing a bad thing, according to their opinion. But but I don't want to talk about that anymore. You know, about, you know, and of course, Hillary breaking her, her computer, you know, breaking up an investigation, destroying evidence, you know, but then they turn around. Well, well let me get right to the point here. That is, I like this, what you're reading, this intellectual takeout. Uh-huh. Neat. I think we may be reaching the, the edges of your, your cell service there, Ray. It's breaking up. Oh, no. Uh-oh. Is it, am I making the jump? Yeah, go ahead. We've got about a minute here. Let's, let's bring okay. it on home. Okay, so, so, um, so they have a parliament to argue out the issues, but they do it a different way than us. And the president... The the the, the, um, the the uh house was trying to weaken uh, you know one of the um, branches of government they were trying to weaken it and they wanted to make themselves stronger and i'm saying wait a minute the, the founding fathers they had an amazing ability for foresight and i have to say maybe it's because of prayer or meditation they could think things through and see the future and see the outcome and and see, even though they're thinking passionately about something, that they have the ability to put ego aside and say, well, I'm passionate about this, but maybe I'm wrong. Let's think this out and see what the outcome would be. Would this weaken our nation? Yeah. We we reject their counsel at our own risk. And and I got to be honest, the, the, the thing about her tearing up the, the speech and, well, maybe that's a crime— that, to me, seems almost a swing back the opposite way in terms of let's let's nitpick over little technicalities and and try to find reasons to to, you know, to bring people to account for it. Um, I guess I. Oh, yes. I don't see yes, it. I don't see it solving the problem. Um, but but, you know, what she did was was certainly an ugly thing to see. I think the the bigger question is, you know, so so how do we know what to trust? How do we know who to trust? Ray, I appreciate your call. We're up here on the break now. Um, Again, if you'd like to call in, 801-331-8113. One of the things that I think you and I can do that will have measurable impact, maybe not on the nation as a whole, but on each of us, which, you know, enough of us have, have that kind of impact. It makes a difference. And that is to know history. I'll talk about that more when we come back right after these breaks. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. A shout out to our friends listening to us on KTalk 1640 or anybody who's catching the podcast version of this show, whether it's from LovingLiberty.net or one of the many fine podcast platforms or other networks that have carried our shows. Speaking of which, I have my friend, my friend Sam on the line from Missouri. Sam, how are things uh, where you are today? Well, the sun was out a little bit this morning, uh, although uh, we still got snow on the ground and we keep getting these storms that just keep slowing down the work week. And uh, people just are more scared to death to get out and do much of anything anymore. I mean, it's like we were growing up. Uh, our parents had even put chains around the tires if they had to in order to get somewhere where they're going to go. Boy, not anymore. One inch of snow and it's all closed up, man. It's just 
I mean, it's, it's bad. But anyway, uh, this article I actually um, read this morning myself and been pondering it myself. So um, This is the one about the battle for America's soul? Yeah, battle for America's soul, yeah. And um, it goes deeper in a lot of ways too numerous to go into here in the time that we have, but I will just lay out a few things for you um, to, to ponder and for the audience to ponder. All of us in this system, in the, in the education system and stuff that we've been raised in, unless you've been privileged enough to go to a uh, school that's outside of the average run-of-the-mill school system, have been lied to in one way or another. I mean, you got, for example... Every time something comes up, when they can, for example, when the uh, race issue is thrown around, you know, you got the, the you got the Democrats who will throw around the issue of slavery, and uh, never mind, you know, there's so much hypocritical stuff going on there. It's not even funny, but they'll throw that around. And there's way more to it than just saying that America endorsed slavery. Well, the problem the the, the problem most people don't want to deal with is there's way more to it than just the issue of slavery at that time. I mean, that was a tradition that was actually brought over, um, over you know, over here. And was it wrong? Yeah, I, I, as a freedom-oriented guy, it's wrong to 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 to, to uh, think you can own somebody. I, I don't agree with that. But before you just go throwing things around, you got to do your research, you know. And people don't stop to think about the fact that there's no nation on the face of the earth that is perfect. Everybody has all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But here, this here. is what happens when you remove God out of the society. And this is, we have a lot of very godless-oriented people out there who don't even believe in the God of Scripture uh, throwing arguments around that in reality the basis is getting back to god and uh, seeking god's wisdom and quit living living in a life of sin i mean you know it's it's, it's uh you know and and at least um, at least repent of of your sins you know so but that's just one example right there the issue of slavery i mean there's way more to that how we got out of slavery the whole issue surrounding the war between the states you know, I urge everybody to dig into that stuff and really dig into it deep to see how, see why and how we got went through all of that. You have uh, you have uh, led this exactly the direction that I hoped you would, and and I, I thank you for your thoughts on this, Sam. Oh yeah, and I mean, and it's just like the same thing. Another lie that we're going through right now, and I I don't uh, you know I again. We're all adults here. We should be able to reasonably uh, uh, talk about these issues. The issue of Israel, we we uh, we uh, support Israel on a um, in a manner in which no matter what they do, we support them. Okay, now the Israel that we're supporting is an Israeli government, which is just as equally in the sin bin as any other nation. My point that I've always been trying to make, and the more research that I do, the more I find it out, and that is the Israel which God talks about in the Bible is a group of people. It's not what the U.N. has created, which was started in 1948. Now, I use these two examples as a, an example of why we're in the division that we're in, because we all need to pull, uh, pull back the layers of the onion and go back from square one and say, how have I been lied to? And what am I going to do? Am I going to just keep barking the same lies, or am I going to? And see, we have lies on both the conservative and the liberal side. Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, it, 
Absolutely. Yeah, and that's what we need to really start digging into. And my comments regarding Israel is nothing against the Israeli people at all, okay? It's simply the fact that we support this thing we call Israel, which is nothing like what was depicted in the scriptures. So I want to make that perfectly clear. But let's just go back and peel off the layers of the onion, understand how we've all been lied to, and uh, work our way forward from there. And I think that would straighten things out. Sam, I thank you for your comments. Um, I, this is exactly the direction I hope to go because I want to. I want to spend some time talking about why does it matter? As Sam says, to pull back those layers to to learn the history. How did we get here? From there, there's a terrific article from Annie Holmquist. She is the editor of IntellectualTakeout.org, and she talks about how America's schools are focusing on diversity at history's expense. Now, I guess most of you've probably heard something about the 1619 Project. She says, by now, many of us either view, have viewed ads about or seen references to or even read directly from this initiative of the New York Times, which marks four centuries since slaves first came to America. Now, Annie Holmquist says it sounds like an admirable or an admirable initiative. No, after all, it's good to remember our history, especially the bad parts, so we can ensure that we don't repeat the mistakes of the past. But as many have pointed out, that isn't the objective of the New York Times. Writing in the February issue of Chronicles, a magazine of American culture, scholar Brian McClanahan sets about deconstructing the 1619 Project. And he actually uses the words of project director Jake Silverstein to describe the goals of the the Times project. According to Silverstein, the project was intended to address the marginalization of African-American history in the telling of our national story and examine the legacy of slavery in contemporary American life. Now, in Brian McClanahan's eyes, such a statement is misleading. He says this would imply that American pop culture has been devoid of material dedicated to race and slavery. Indeed, it assumes that Americans are not at all acquainted with the issue and that there's been a veritable conspiracy to keep black American history off the pages of American history textbooks and out of the popular imagination. So, as Annie Holmquist points out, you have to ask the question, is such a charge true? Has black history been marginalized in our nation's schools? Drawing from an academic survey of high school students and adults, McClanahan calls such an assumption into question. He says a study conducted between 2004 and 2005 by education professors Sam Weinberg and Chauncey Montesano asked both high school students and adults to choose the top 10 most heroic Americans. Now, they could not select a president or wife of a president, and the survey did not provide possible answers. Do you realize the top three choices of high school students were Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, and Harriet Tubman? And those three names were in the top ten of adult answers as well. So as Annie points out, it's a little bit hard to answer that question having just seen the answers of others, but give yourself a few minutes and try. Who do you come up with? She asked around the office and got a variety of answers, including, you guessed it, Martin Luther King Jr. Now, MLK was certainly someone who performed heroic deeds, as were Rosa Parks and Harriet Tubman. But why is he someone who comes to our mind first? Why do we overlook other spectacular American heroes like Davy Crockett, Nathan Hale, the Pilgrims, or even Sergeant York? Could it be that today's schools are so eager to promote diversity that they are not marginalizing African-American history as the 1619 Project claims, but instead are giving it a disproportionate amount of attention. Now, this isn't to disparage individuals like Martin Luther King in the least. 
there is indeed a need to teach students about African-American heroes. But do we do those same heroes a disservice when we continually focus on them at the expense of a wide array of other American heroes, as the previously mentioned survey seems to indicate? Do we force children to do exactly what Martin Luther King warned about, judging people on the color of their skin instead of the content of their character? That's a fair question. She says today only 12% of the nation's high school seniors are proficient in history. Now with numbers like that, perhaps we should be less concerned about diversity and more concerned about ensuring our students have a well-rounded knowledge of the men and women who made our country great. Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. All right, let's talk a little bit about why is it so important to, to know history? You know what's funny is uh, my friend Stan Ellsworth is actually uh, headed this way, coming to, to record some stuff here. And uh, Stan is one of those those great people I love because he ha- he's like a walking history book. And Stan can tell you not just, you know, the basic facts that you and I would learn, you know, in a history class, but some of the stories behind the stories. Which I'm not saying that this is, you know, this is the key to truly understanding history, but it gives you insights And helps you understand that, uh, you know, sometimes we're fed a little more, I don't know if sanitized is the right word, but uh, basically, uh, you know, prepared for public consumption kind of version of history. And it it leaves out the human element. And that can cause us to to view those who came before us as, I don't know, sometimes, you know, inferior in some way. Why? Well, they didn't have smartphones, did they? Did they have a car? Show me a rocket ship that they built. No, they didn't have any of those things. But I would defy you to read their actual writings, their journals, their letters, or even the documents that they framed and come away with the idea that, uh, yeah, these were just, you know, they were pretty primitive people. Mostly sat around wearing togas, you know, feeding each other grapes and making speeches while gesturing to the sky. That's how I used to to think of people from, from history until I actually started reading some original sources and went, There's serious depth here, as in it will challenge you. I don't care how smart you are. I like what my friend Robert Bodine says, and and, and he sums up why it's so essential that we devote ourselves to understanding who and what came before us. This is what he says. He says, we are all thrust on the stage of life, the main event that's been going on for thousands of years. We confront its many manifestations gradually as we grow. Our parents give us guidance on how to adapt to the modern version of life. They teach us about our traditions and beliefs and instill knowledge and skills. We are then taught by our teachers that we are the culmination of many millennia of evolution and we are the highest form of life on earth at its most developed. We're told that our parents are old-fashioned and have no clue about the modern world. The experts have the answers to the mysteries of life. You will die and your dust will nourish others in the ongoing evolution toward perfection. 
He says the study of history becomes a ridiculous enterprise because the past is dead and the future is now. So history is ignored to keep the masses deluded. Now, he says, without historical understanding, we remain ignorant and we have no clue about our traditions and institutions. How they formed, how they evolved, how many were replaced. But he says, I challenge you to tell me how a piece of paper became legal money. How did our educational system evolve into its completely pathetic situation today? How did our arts become so corrupted, our media, our language? These traditions are widely accepted today without thought because we grew up with it and lost our curiosity to question such things as money, education, and the arts. And this line brings it all home. Without historical understanding, we have no clue about our traditions and institutions and will accept anything our experts teach us. Does that make sense? By the way, feel free to call in. Agree or disagree. I'd love to hear from you. 801-331-8113. There was another great article from Gary Gallas. This is from the Von Mises Institute. Why democracy doesn't give us what we want. And this kind of gets to the fundamentals of of government and how we think it's supposed to operate versus, versus how it's actually operating. And we hear the word democracy a lot. Well, you know, President Trump had to be tried. He had to be, you know, up for impeachment. Why? To protect our democracy. Or so the narrative goes. Listen to what Gary Gallus says. He says that Americans are in the throes of a crisis in democracy has become a commonplace refrain of late. In fact, he says, I've noticed that almost all such commentary treats political democracy implicitly or explicitly as the ideal. Yet in truth, it is a seriously flawed ideal. In fact, as F.A. Hayek noted years ago, all the inherited limitations on government power are breaking down before unlimited democracy. The problem today. End quote. So perhaps the most blatant evidence against the ideas that the idea that moving forward or moving toward more democracy is always an improvement is the frequency with which policies and candidates claiming majority support advance coercive measures that take from some to give to others. That's robbery, which violates universal moral and ethical principles, making it less than ideal. He says, in fact, there are these there are several ways that political democracy comes up short as an ideal. An ideal would avoid voting in or violating rather individuals established rights. Boy, Virginia. This this will be a case study in this. It would be responsive. People's choices would have to matter. It would give people incentives to become well informed and to think carefully about policies. It would require powerful incentives to deter dishonesty and misrepresentation. It would have to be limited in scope as no one wants every choice about their lives subject to majority determination. It's hard to think of government policies that don't violate someone's or some people's rights. In fact, he says some violations are often the main drivers of policy, like price controls, even though they violate the central function of a government advancing its citizens' well-being, which is defending existing rights. So in contrast to reams of democracy extolling rhetoric, the fact is that virtually no one's vote changes the results at the ballot box. Just ask yourself if you can name an exception. 
Consequently, democratic results are not responsive to individuals' preferences. And he says further, voters typically face binary votes on, quote, electable candidates who represent bundles of policies and promises, some of which the vast majority of them, of even those who voted for them, object to. And that's a long way from giving voters power to effectively exercise their desires. The least harmful option, not the most preferred, is frequently chosen. So most voters face very limited incentives to think carefully about policies, illustrated by the vast number who don't even know who their political representatives are. That's largely because, unlike individuals' markets votes with their dollars, which change their outcomes, better matching their circumstances and preferences, public policy voting does not. He says politics also imposes fewer effective constraints on dishonesty and misrepresentation than market arrangements do. Beyond greater customer ignorance, politics has no truth in advertising laws, no money-back guarantees, no effective warranties. Politicians' wares are not easily evaluated, since they're hopefully plausible-sounding stories about candidates' intentions, which they can't accomplish alone, backed by the ever-ready escape hatch excuse that fails to deliver on what was promised, uh, that, uh, that failures, rather, to deliver on what was promised represent the best deal that was actually possible. Oh, my goodness. This rings so true. And he says there's also typically no more than one electable competitor to keep candidates honest. And that's frequently limited only to the election season. So in a political democracy, a majority can also force its preferences on others in any issue. That's why our founders adopted constraints on majority abuse, such as limited delegated powers and the Bill of Rights. However, those constraints have largely been undermined. In contrast to political democracy, free market capitalism, which reflects democratic self-government, represents a far better ideal. Its system of exclusively voluntary cooperation based on self-ownership requires that property rights be respected. No majority can violate owners' rights. Individuals' dollar votes change their outcomes, even when their preferences are not the majority's preferences, making them far better informed than they are about politics. And there are also more mechanisms providing honesty and accountability. So he concludes by saying holding democracy out as an ideal overlooks the question of whether market democracy or political democracy better serves citizens. And if that's the end in view, a superior form of democracy is to remove virtually all decisions and policies that we need not share in common, which truthfully would be about all of them, almost all of them beyond the mutual protection of our property rights. From government dictation, take it away, even if they are democratic and let people exercise self-government through their own voluntary arrangements protected by their inalienable rights. Now, you know, the funny thing about that, there is no doubt in my mind that right now, even some of my conservative brothers and sisters are clutching their chests, reaching for their nitroglycerin pills. and go, That sounds like anarchy. That is what statism will do to a person. It will give you a heart condition. Okay, maybe it won't give you a heart condition, but it gives you the impression that anything that is not under the direct control of the state is somehow, by definition, out of control. It's not true. And there was a time where the American people understood this, and government was necessarily limited to very few, very specific, and clearly defined roles. Everything else was left up to us to sort out voluntarily. I may sound like a stick in the mud, but I'd kind of like to see those days return. 
We'll take a quick break back after these messages. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. Listen, you have time to get your licks in. I mean, if, if you feel the urge to call and either, uh, you can either violently agree with me or you can set me straight if I need that. 801-331-8113. I guarantee where I'm about to go next is probably going to touch a few nerves. So uh, let's just go there, shall we? Let's talk about Mitt Romney for just a moment. And, and I know that uh, for, for some people, this is this is going to feel like, oh, really, is it time to, to just pile on and, and give Mitt Romney what for? Um, OK, it's going to sound like I'm bragging when I tell you this, but I had Mitt Romney figured out quite some time ago. In fact, I, I still look back with some with some hu- uh, humor on the 2012 election, mainly because my host I'm not going to name names, but you would recognize her because she's quite a prominent person on uh, the Loving Liberty Radio Network. And she's and she's got a stellar career of her own now. But she was she was in the bag for Mitt Romney and telling me this is the guy you got to go for it. You have to vote for him. There is no choice. Now, of course, I was more inclined. I liked Ron Paul. I thought he spoke the language of freedom and uh, I saw the way he was treated by you know the Republicans at both the 2008 as well as the 2012 conventions. And it just it irked me. But it wasn't so much a spite vote against Mitt Romney as what I saw when I saw Mitt Romney was I saw a consummate politician. And that may sound like a compliment, but I do not mean that as a compliment. If I wanted to compliment him, I would say that guy is a consummate statesman. But uh, Governor Romney, you know, very supportive of things like, oh, I don't know, gun bans, socialized medicine, abortion. And this was a Republican, I mean, in a, in a very, very blue Democratic state. He not only got himself elected, but he thrived in that setting. And I'm not saying that it makes him a terrible person. It just means as a politician, he's willing to do whatever he has to do to keep the donations coming, to keep him in office. And he's willing to say whatever he needs to say to keep voters voting for him. So when Orrin Hatch's seat came up for, you know, for grabs here uh, two years ago, I shook my head when Mitt Romney suddenly was a Utah resident. Oh, hey, you know, <laughs> formerly from Michigan, formerly from Massachusetts. Why, yes, I'm a Utah and have been all my life. And here he came and. Uh, all right, I, here, here goes. This is the nuclear option. Way, way too many people who should know better looked at him with stars in their eyes and went, Oh, Brother Romney. Brother Romney's running for the Senate. We got to support Brother Romney. Now, there were other people running for the Senate as well. In fact, there were actually some some pretty decent candidates. But because he was Brother Romney, because he had the name recognition, more importantly, because he had the funding and the support of the political establishment, that should tell you something. He got in there. And so people now who are waking up going, hey, why was this thing him voting, you know, against against Trump on one of these articles of impeachment? If if you had stayed up a couple of nights doing just even a little bit of homework on this guy, you would have seen it. And this isn't to suggest that Mitt Romney is stupid. It's not to suggest that he's evil. He is a politician and he does what is politically expedient. And right now he looks like a guy who's, you know, getting 
bounced around pretty good, at least by by a number of political leaders here in Utah. As uh, my friend Joe Carey was pointing out in his show, I don't think Romney has had the guts yet to face the voting public here in Utah. There was an excellent article published on thefederalist.com. This is by Ariel Davidson. And the headline alone really, I think, sums up the story. Romney's entire career has been about punishing Republicans for voting for him. The the subheadline says he attempts to portray himself as a moral bulwark, but as his shifts indicate, many of his political leanings seem to be more a product of self-interest than of genuine moral clarity. And I totally agree with her, her assessment here. It was that lack of consistency, that willingness to say whatever needed to be said at the moment and then enact whatever he felt was was going to be popular with the people that trampled right on top of principle. That's where I was like, I can't support the guy. Now, it's funny because I I, I listened to my former co-host and and she's right on the money now. How could we have been so stupid to, to bring this guy into power? And I'm like, yeah, but uh, oh, well. You know, there, I'm sure there have been plenty of other people who tried to warn me about stuff that I plowed ahead and, and then had to learn the hard way. Here from the article, in a recent interview with McKay Coppins of The Atlantic, Senator Mitt Romney of Utah said he would vote to convict President Donald Trump on the impeachment article alleging abuse of power, but not on the article alleging obstruction of Congress. Romney said this has been the most difficult decision I've ever had to make in my life. He is the only Republican who voted to convict on any of the articles of impeachment. Now, Ariel Davidson says Romney's decision was terrifically predictable, and given his vote did not swing the results in either direction, the gravitas that he already assigned to his decision in the form of two interview exclusives seems a bit theatrical and self-indulgent. There's an unshakable self-satisfaction that Romney exudes when he goes on heavy-headed tours, demarcating to the adoring left how he is decidedly different from all the other GOP members. She says, yes, he's different from many others within the GOP in the sense that he has no firm principles on which to base his political decisions besides self-interest and self-importance. By the way, this is where shades of Pierre Delecto uh, may, may start to appear. He's vaguely in favor of free markets insofar as he appreciates a pro-business environment, having been a businessman once. But that seems to be the extent of his political personality. Romney's efforts to appear above the lesser GOP fray in many cases has translated into a repudiation of conservatism. Now, to be clear, Romney may vote however he pleases, but she says he, along with our media betters, will likely portray his alleged defection as a more principled approach to conservatism. That takeaway is incorrect. Romney has been voting against his own party's voters for his entire political career and on core moral issues, not just pragmatic choices such as the level of tax rates or regulation. And here's some history to back that up. For starters, Romney's track record on religious freedom has been poor. Catholic leaders in Massachusetts, the state in which Romney formerly served as governor, have emphasized Romney's role in forcing Catholic hospitals to administer the abortifacient Plan B, even if doing so violated the, consequ- the conscien- consciences rather, of the employee required to administer the deadly drugs. The injury to the conscience rights of Catholic hospitals was not done so much by the church's ideological enemies on the left, but by the Romney administration. That's according to C.J. Doyle, executive director of the Catholic Action League. Furthermore, as Rolling Stone points out, Romney has flipped on everything from abortion to health care, making it hard to determine whether he means what he espouses at any given moment. 
In a 1994 debate with Senator Ted Kennedy of Massachusetts, he proudly announced, I believe that abortion should be safe and legal in this country. I believe that since Roe v. Wade has been the law for 20 years and that we should sustain and support it. And he says, I sustain and support that law and the right of a woman to make that choice. Now, he evolved to eventually arrive at the pro-life position in 2011. At the convenient moment, he decided to run on the Republican ticket. The playbook is the same for health care, where he went from supporting an insurance mandate, arguing that he would love to export the Massachusetts Romney care model to the nation at large, to accusing Brett Beyer of being wrong when the Fox host attempted to re- attempted to remind him of this. The uh, Beyer interaction uh, interaction rather occurred in 2011 as Romney geared up for yet another presidential bid. In 2003, when Romney appeared at a legislative conference in Massachusetts, he earned ire for failing to take a position on the George W. Bush tax cuts, presumably at an event heavily attended by Democrats. Yet just four years later, Romney had the audacity to declare he had supported the tax cuts, accusing former Senator John McCain of not doing so. So it's no surprise that the flop reared its ugly head in the year leading up to his 2008 presidential bid. Now, Let's let's not belabor the point. It's the inconsistency that makes it very hard to take at face value. Romney's claim that, well, you know, my conscience is that I should vote to convict the president on this count of abusing his power. I want I want elected representatives who will vote their conscience. I want them to have a working, functioning conscience. And I want it to be something that they're acquainted with and not just, you know, yeah, I casually brushed up against it once, I think, at a bus station. No. They need to be people who exercise it regularly. But when you have that inconsistency of doing whatever was most pragmatic, whatever was going to work in the moment to give you the desired political advantage. Don't be surprised if people have to question, you know, like the little boy who cried wolf. Does he really mean it? Ariel says he attempts to portray himself as a moral bulwark, but as the above shifts in opinion indicate, Many of his products seem to be a more a product of self-interest than of genuine moral clarity. So I'm not telling you, you should be throwing trash at this guy as he walks down the street, but I'm telling you, this is a perfect example of why you can't trust politicians. They are known for saying whatever they need to say to get you to vote for them and doing whatever they need to do to get the, the, uh, the revenues and the donations that will keep them in office. And that's a very amoral way to go about doing your job. Buyer beware, so to speak. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. Have a wonderful weekend. Stick around. Kate Daly is on the way next on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Welcome. Welcome. To the Loving Liberty Radio Network.